welcome to Two Props in a Pod. I'm Tanisha. I'm Beth. And we are faculty at Glendale Community College in Arizona. And we are so excited to be here today. And we are really excited for what we're doing, which is kind of a little bit of a new format that we're calling Campus Chats. So due to things like the pandemic, we don't really have the opportunity to really run into our colleagues and have conversations like we usually do in between classes or on our way to lunch or on our way to the library or our car. So we thought, why not recreate that experience for our listeners? So what we're doing is that Campus Chats is where we're actually going to connect with faculty from our campus for our podcast. So we're really excited for this new format. And Beth is going to go ahead and introduce who our campus conversationalist is going to be for today. Okay, today we are very excited to welcome Nick Baker, who is a uh, new residential faculty at GCC this year. He is currently teaching Bio 156 and 160. These are Intro to Anatomy and Physiology and Intro to Cellular Biology classes. And his schooling is from NAU and his graduate degree from ASU in biology with a specialty in neuroscience. And that got him into beekeeping. Welcome, Nick. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yes, we're excited to have you. Um, I know that we've kind of crossed paths a little bit um, with like new faculty orientation and um, also our, what we call our event is called Bring Them Back Brunch, but we call it Bring Your Own Brunch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which was kind of uh, an opportunity for us to come together. And I remember just in introductions, um, one of the things you mentioned is that before you came to GCC, you mentioned that you were a farmer. Yes. So could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess it all started with, uh, well, getting into my master's degree and running into the professor uh, who helped sponsor me and uh, her lab group used honeybees as a research model. So before I could even do research, I had to learn the beekeeping aspects of everything. And so I learned how to do the beekeeping. I stayed at uh, ASU in academic research for about eight or nine years. Um, And then I took a little hiatus. And when I moved back to the States, uh, I started a small little uh, beekeeping company. Uh, I moved my bees from Arizona to California to Texas to pollinate almonds, uh, melons, citrus, cotton, alfalfa. So. Yeah, typically over the last five years would produce about four to five different uh, varieties of honey from all around Arizona, um, depending on the, the time of year and what flowers in bloom. That's what the, the type of honey you're going to get. Um, and yeah, so for five years, I, I basically uh, just worked my bees and kept my bees on either different farmlands or uh, ranches all throughout Arizona. And then again, uh Almonds is a big honey crop for people, so we always move our bees to the almonds uh, to California each February for almond production. And then I did, uh, again, some melons in Texas every once in a while and stuff. That is so cool. Like, I have to honestly say I'm kind of geeking out a little bit because, uh, <laughs> like, I read The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd, and... Mm-hmm. 
you know, there's some beekeeping in that. And I'm like, oh, beekeeping is just really cool. You know, like some of the things that you describe, some of the things that are involved, like I had no idea that that bees and almonds were such a big deal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Almond is, you know, 80% of the world's almonds are produced in California. And so that's a big cash crop for beekeepers because the almond producers, they rent our honeybees for us for about four to five weeks. So we transport them to the almonds, put them in the fields. And uh, after the bloom is over, we come and we pick them up and then we bring them back home uh, and then produce honey for uh, until about the end of the summer. Uh, You know, honey production here in Arizona stops about when the cotton stops blooming, which is about end of September, beginning of October. Okay. Wow. So you said you did about eight or nine years of research with ASU um, involving bees. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of that bee research that was maybe most exciting to you? Yeah. Um, so my my research revolved around um, learning memory, aging. <clears throat> With honeybees, uh, the interesting thing is um, you can reverse their social role. And by that, I mean, when you have a honeybee and it emerges from a cell, the first thing it does is nursing tasks. Nursing tasks means, hey, I'm going to feed the babies, clean the house, build new comb, feed the queen, etc. Over a number of weeks, those bees uh, start to transform or not really transform, but chart, start to move into foraging. And so they'll start to leave the hive, get to know where the hive is, and then they'll forage until they die. Kind of like as as we age, you know, when we're younger, it's really easy for us to pick up uh, new tasks, learn new things, et cetera. And as we get older, um, it gets a little harder for us to learn new things. Um, Maybe it takes us a little bit longer to pick something up that maybe we could have picked up as a child. Well, honeybees, it's the same thing. These nurses nurse bees you can train honeybees like pavlov conditioning so i can train a honeybee to recognize an odor uh for example carnation odor by stimulating its antennae with sugar syrup gets it to stick its tongue out and then um give it a little puff of that carnation scent and then give it the reward and with younger bees they make that association real quick within one or two tries older bees um, that have been foraging for a long time they have a really hard time making that connection. Sometimes they never do just because they've been foraging for a long time. What we found uh, is that you can remove all the nurse bees from a colony. So when the foragers come back from looking for food, they look around and say, gosh, why isn't anyone taking care of the babies? Why isn't anyone feeding the babies? Why isn't anyone taking care of the queen or building new comb? So what they do is they revert back to that social task of nursing. And what I found is when they revert back to that social task of nursing, they had an increase in those learning patterns, almost like they were a young forager all over again. And they would make that association between the reward and the carnation scent almost uh, instantaneously, as if they had just all of a sudden reversed their aging. So are you saying that it was maybe more like the experience of it got them to got those forager bees to like have to do that learning quicker than if you were trying to train them to change their role or 
by removing those bees, you by removing those nursing bees, you were trying to train them to a new role. Well, they've already been through that role because you, mm-hmm. as soon as you're born, you do nursing tasks and then uh, you move on to foraging and then you die. Okay. Uh, typically, you don't revert back to nursing unless something like all of a sudden your nurse bees are all gone. And now you've got to revert back to that that young role again, all over again. And so uh, when they reverted back to this nursing tasks like the young bees do, I, I scooped their little brains out and I compared young foragers or sorry, young nurse bees that made these connections. I compared the brains to really old foragers that weren't making the connections. And then I took that really interesting group, those reverted foragers, the ones that went back to nursing tasks and all of a sudden became smart again. And I cut their brains out and I looked at their brains and then I compared all proteins across the board. And what I found is there was an increase in specific proteins for, um, uh, uh, structural proteins like actin within the brain. So may have helped to rebuild some of those structural roles. Uh, some other upticks in antioxidants, things that remove uh, peroxides and other toxins from the brain. So maybe that cleared up some of the chemical messes in those cells. Um, and then other ones like GABA, which are help um, uh, cell signaling. So now they've got an increase in cell signaling again, which makes them to, uh, more easily to communicate with other cells. So it's almost like their brain chemistry, the proteins that help their brain function. Um, uh, we got, again, an uptick in uh, proteins involved in structure, uh, communication, and the removal of toxins. And so that may or may not be what's going on. You know, it's, of course, that's the best speculation put forward mm-hmm. um, by what the findings uh, found compared to uh, things are already known. So we can't do these kind of experiments with people, obviously, until after they pass away, and then we can look at their brains. And there's this really interesting study called the Nun Study from early 2000s. And they looked at brains from all these nuns, uh, because it's a, a pretty much a homogenic group. You know, everyone is pretty much the same. You go to church, you wake up, you do the same activities, a lot of social activities, right? Because you're involved with your church, you're involved with your community. Um, And what they found is they can take brains of people who have uh, dementia or uh, specific forms like Alzheimer's and compare those brains to these uh, nuns. And some of these nuns had brains that actually looked just like someone who would have dementia, but they never experienced those uh, effects. And the reason they think that is, well, the brain is very plastic, meaning it can rewire itself. And perhaps maybe their brain did age, but because they continued with their uh, social roles and continued to learn new things, maybe they picked up a new instrument or uh, they just find that when they wake up in the morning, I have all this community work I need to do. I just, you know, it keeps the brain rewiring itself and kind of keeps it young, so to speak. And so this is kind of a way to say, well, if you learn new tasks um, or you pick up something new, this may help your brain uh, to rewire itself or stop it from kind of uh, getting too demented. But again, it's an overview of the findings, I guess you would say. It's, you know, I can't say for sure that's what happened, but that's kind of what it looks like happened. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. That is really cool. Like, I'm just like, ooh. Yeah, I love it. 
I kind of yeah. want to take one of your classes. <laughs> Did you know you can train bees? And you know, yeah. the, the cool thing about bees too is they recognize colors, they recognize patterns, and they can count and they recognize zero means absolutely, you know, has no value. Wow. So they're, 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 they're a little more smart. intelligent than people give. Yeah. 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 And we as humans use a lot of the same proteins uh, that bees and other insects use to um, recall memories and other stuff. So uh, we can compare the proteins to what people have. I mean, they're not mm-hmm. always exactly the same, but very similar. Yeah. One of the questions I was going to ask you, but you've sort of answered it here is, you know, how much of the research is strictly about bees and their behavior to, you know, just for the sake of learning about the bees and preserving honeybees versus how much of it is, what can we apply to humans? And so you kind of made that jump a little bit for us. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the beauty about honeybees. I mean, you have one bee colony and in a very strong colony with two boxes, you've got 60,000 research subjects. So picking one or two off isn't going to hurt the colony. And yeah, yeah, so it it makes for a really good research model. And Mm -hmm. and on top of that, you get new bees, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Depending on the time of year. (laughs) Now, I definitely have to echo what Beth mentioned, like, she mentioned how she would want to take one of your classes. I, I would love to take one of your classes too. Um, so if like, if a student was to take your class, like what, what can your students expect from you in an online environment this semester? Or if Beth and I were to take your class, like what, what could we expect as, as students um, in an online environment this semester? Uh, currently both of my classes are fully online, um, which is my f- really my first time except for this past summer really because my class was put online um but for me uh currently what I, what i've done is i have and I, i'm assuming this is what you're asking <laughs> um i have all my you know my powerpoints up i've narrated them posted them and what i like to do is i like to meet with my students even though excuse me it's online I still like to meet with uh, my class at least once a week for one hour. It's not the live online session, but uh, if they can make it, then we jump in and we use that time to go through any difficult subject matter or to just talk about uh, any troubles or whatever is going on. So this way, my students, even though I'm there virtually, they can still put a face uh, to the class um, and not just a narrated PowerPoint. Um, And I, I, I try to relate things to, uh, as I'm sure everyone else does, to the real world with lots of analogies. Um, And, you know, learning should be fun. And if it weren't for, I can tell you, I had two beautifully wonderful science teachers growing up, one in high school and one in college. And one was my chemistry teacher in high school. The other one was my biology professor in college, but both of them were somewhat the same. They didn't take life too seriously. You walked into class, you knew you were going to have a good time and you were going to smile. There's going to be some jokes and the class was going to be interesting and, and related back to uh, the real world. And so I want my students to have fun. I want to give them that same experience. So I can remember sophomore year in college, 19, 20 years old and having a 730 a.m. biology class and being like, yeah, I really want to go because I actually enjoy weight, you know, even though I have, I probably only got an hour of sleep last night. I just love joining that class because 
my teacher is so fun and amazing. And uh, I just want to try to recreate that environment. And I'm not quite there yet, but I'm working on it. And uh, yeah, I just, I want everyone to know science can be fun. Yes, it can be difficult. Uh, but once you start applying concepts together, it actually gets a lot easier. Things start to make sense. And uh, you can just have lots and lots of fun because you start seeing how everything is just linked together. Oh, I love that. And that's really important. Oh, go ahead, Beth. Well, I might have gotten some tingles when he was talking because I love it when people share experiences about teachers who made such an impression on them. And here you are, Nick, teaching. Yes. I mean, that's it. Both my parents were teachers. (laughs) Well, okay. Well, okay. There's the real secret then. (laughs) (laughs) It really was um, Dr. Dunn and Dr. Allred. I'll never forget those two gentlemen. I mean, they just... The, the best part, chemistry. Oh, let's talk about ionic bonds, throwing a piece of chalk on the ground and stump and going, there's an ionic bond. You see how it just broke apart and there, you know, yeah. it was just, yeah, overall good time. And and I think learning should be as fun as, as you can make it, you know, certain subject matters. I'm sure no matter how hard you try, it could be bland. <laughs> that right. can happen in space too, but, uh, uh, that's, that's what I like about teaching is, is, um, the challenge of relating it back to everybody and making it enjoyable. Yeah. That's, and that's, awesome. that's right. Yeah. And I, and I truly believe that with, with subject matters, it can be fun. You know, I think about, I know this takes, takes us back to childhood, but I think about, you know, how programs like Sesame street and, oh. Bill Nye, and like Bill Nye, the science guy, yeah. you know, made, <laughs> yeah, they, they all made the subject matters fun. So it's, it's possible. And, and they made me believe that there's really no such thing as like boring subjects. It's yes. really how you present it that makes a difference. So Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. So my next question, um, how will your students experience the secret life of bees in an online environment? So the online environment, yeah, I don't know about this semester, but um, before I uh, got hired on at uh, GCC, I was actually uh, awarded a CURE grant. And so um, I will be bringing some research to the campus as soon as it uh, opens up enough again. And we will be looking at honeybees and the effect of different um, diets or supplements that us beekeepers feed to keep our bees healthy um, to test and see how they affect the microbiome or the, the gut makeup of the bacteria in the gut. And if it's helpful or hurting the bees themselves, because even as a beekeeper myself, uh, you know, over winter, you're told, oh, use this product, uh, DMF or uh, might be DFM. I can never remember. Um, but this is supposed to help your bees through the winter stay nice and healthy because it's full of amino acids and essential oils and yada, yada, yada. And sure, my bees looked healthy coming out of the winter, but is it really working? Am I, could I get away with not feeding the bees that and they would be perfectly fine? Cause it's very expensive. So of course, you know, this would be helpful too to beekeepers to figure out um, what I'm, what they're spending their money on. Is it really worth um, the manipulation they may or may not be doing to that honeybee? Because uh, mm-hmm. winter time is the most difficult time for beekeepers with uh, pests and um, feeding regimen and all that stuff and so uh anything that can help 
keep bees alive through the winter, uh, I'd love to figure out because those supplements are used real heavy typically in times of dearth, which is mostly winter time and then occasionally throughout the the year like here in arizona uh we have bloom starts the end of february with citrus and then by the end of march the beginning of april the citrus is done and now we have all the desert plants that bloom uh well your mesquite your palo verdes uh your uh, uh, uh i'm out of trees uh <laughs> brittle brush you know all these other ones and then those kind of stop and then come may you've got your swirl cactus your um excuse me, swirl cactus, barrel cactus, all your cactus plants really start to bloom in late May. Uh, and then you have a dearth in June where there's no food source, unless you have your bees on maybe some alfalfa at a farm where the alfalfa will bloom. Uh, there's just nothing in June. So you might supplement your bees at that time with some sugar water or a little pollen substitute. And then come July when the monsoons, if they actually show up, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, things bloom again and we get a different set of desert plants in late summer. And you get that other uh, 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 set of honey. And then you also, for me, well, I put my bees on alfalfa and the farmers can't cut it fast enough. So it really blooms and they're beautiful purple flowers and it makes a delicious honey. And uh, you can make several crops of that through July, through August, and then the cotton uh, tends to bloom mid-August or so, and that'll carry you through uh, October. I never harvested the cotton honey. I left that on the bees so they could use that as supplement through uh, the beginning of fall and into the winter, and that way I could feed them less over the winter. Hmm. Well, I, I look forward to you doing that um, research, and I hope you'll come back and talk with us again um, yeah, and, be fun. and share with us what you've learned about it. So speaking of learning, Nick, we are online mm -hmm. and um, you are in a department that typically on our campus anyway, has not really had much of an online presence. Yes. So what, what is the best thing you've learned about online teaching so far that, that it's this thing that if your colleagues knew might really help them? I mean, <laughs> colleagues across the whole campus is campus. Is this too much pressure? because <laughs> <A little. laughs> the first thing that came to mind was just be flexible with the students because some of us may be learning at the same time they're learning when it yeah. comes to online and online presentation and to be open-minded to criticism uh, from students who might say I don't understand where you're going with this whereas the majority of them do but you know it, we're all human we all have our own tunnel vision mindset and just be willing to um i suppose open up and, and and take advice more from the students to be honest because they're the ones that are experiencing this online environment and we're the ones that are giving it to them and uh, it needs to be obviously presented in a way that they're comfortable with and so i always keep my email open and door open well door right mm -hmm. uh, open for people to let me know what they think and how I can do better. So I also make surveys and post those every now and then through, you know, Google Docs or whatnot. And I can get instant feedback. Uh, just seeing how things are going. Awesome. That was perfect. It's, it's almost like you knew that answer. <laughs> I, had, I mean, it was great. 
I'm still a little blush, but no one can see you. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. So being flexible and being open really, really goes a long way, not only for ourselves, but our students as well. Yeah. And my concern, again, is mostly for for the students, because I know uh, <laughs> if it's frustrating for me to get it set up and get it the way I feel is good, then it's got to be even when they log on and they're like, uh, I feel like I'm navigating blindly or by myself. And so I post a lot of announcements. Hey, and every at the end of every announcement is, please email me if you have any questions or concerns. Please email me. It's just a constant barrage of talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. All right. So um, we're going to round things up with this last section, which is a fun section that we call what's on your radar. So what's on your radar is just us sharing anything that's kind of at the forefront of your brain, whether that's a book or a movie or a Netflix show. So what's on your radar, Nick? Oh, Um, oh, well, as crazy as this time is right now, uh, we just somehow managed and, and bought ourselves a new house. And uh, so we're pretty excited uh, to hopefully, as long as the inspection goes well today, then we'll close on the 8th. But uh, right now, I'll tell you what, a house pops on the market within one or two days, someone has picked it up and taken it. So we feel mm-hmm. very lucky that we found one that we've fell in love with and we happened to um, snag it before somebody else. And quite honestly, I have to give it to my agent because he had us write a little personal letter about our family and why we're so happy to get that. And, you know, they, they took a lower offer, which was ours because they enjoyed uh, the letter about me and my wife and, and my child. So uh, wow. really excited to yeah get into a new place. Um, and uh, I guess that, and then if I were to say, Something else, I got a Nintendo Switch, which uh, for regular price, which apparently it w- was very difficult for months to find. And so I lucked out and got one of those. So uh, I can't wait to start playing with my Nintendo Switch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mario Kart. That is so awesome. Well, first and foremost, I'm so excited for you in the house, which is Thank you. <laughs> a lot bigger than the Nintendo Switch. Uh, but yeah, I'm super psyched for the Nintendo Switch because I also have one as well. So, and it's I'm a, a gaming nerd. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. My my husband's into gaming too. So he tuned he tuned me into the Nintendo Switch, and I've been playing ever since. So you know, kudos so on finding one. Yeah. yeah, kudos on finding one. <laughs> yeah, I that, was, that was hard. It took about four months, and someone's like, "Hey, yeah, they sold a few at Target, and I grabbed an extra one." And I was like, "Yes, thank you for thinking of me." <laughs> I knew Tanisha was going to love that as soon as you said it. I was thinking, oh my gosh, yes. you might have a new best friend. Yes. We're going to have to talk about games. <laughs> yeah, I've heard uh, Animal Crossing and Mario Kart, what I'm supposed to be doing. So we'll start yeah. there. And then whatever Mario comes out, well, you know, I grew up in the 80s. So yes yeah. to Mario. No, that's awesome. I'm an Animal Crossing nerd, so we can definitely talk about that. <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> we need tips and tricks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you for sharing your radar. Uh, Beth, what's on your radar? 
Okay, so just real quick, what's on my radar is HBO's Lovecraft Country. At least I think that's the title. Yeah. I just started it, but I've only gotten about 20 minutes into the first episode, but it doesn't matter. I already love it. Uh, just just the, the look of it, the atmosphere of it, the characters, the literature, like it's... It's all good. And I can't even, I can't wait to, to get more. I, maybe I have to give myself 20 minutes at a time. Cause I think I'm going to like it so much that I'm not going to want it to end. So that's on my radar. That's awesome. Tanisha. Um, for me, it's a book. I just finished one up. So I just started a new one. It's uh, Rachel Hollis's book called girl. I think it's, um, oh, girl, wash your face. That's what it's Yeah, it's, it's kind of like one of those self-improvement books, which I enjoy. I think they're fun to read. Um, mm-hmm. So I just got into that. I don't really have much to say about it, but that's what's on my radar right now. Awesome. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Nick. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to, you know, talk about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun chatting. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. You want to do a little ending, Tanisha? Oh, yeah. I should probably do that. That would help. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Thank you so much for joining us on Two Crops in a Pod. Thank you for joining us for our Kansas Conversations with Nick. We're excited that you joined us, and we're looking forward to having you join us again. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you very much. I appreciate it all the time. It's so much fun.